You know something, I was nervous until I started to play. And once I had my violin in my hand and I was doing something I really knew, and we had played this program dozens and dozens of times for the GIs, the wounded mm -hmm. GIs. Mm -hmm. So I knew what I was doing and I was not nervous anymore. So, you know, it's just how, how life is. If you're, it's the thought that makes you nervous, but once you're doing what you are uh, accustomed to doing, you're okay. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and this is part one of a two-part interview with violinist and conductor Stuart Kanan. In March of 2017, my wife Paul and I traveled to the San Francisco Bay Area to record a series of interviews for the Rosin the Bow Project. One person I was particularly keen to meet was Mr. Kanan. Still making music at the age of 91, Mr. Kanan's career includes serving as the concertmaster of the San Francisco Symphony, the San Francisco Opera, and the Los Angeles Opera. He also served as concertmaster for a number of distinguished composers of film scores, such as John Williams and Randy Newman. Add to this his role as founding member and first music director of the New Century Chamber Orchestra, and you might wonder what other accomplishments he may lay claim to. What about being the instigator of a famous feud between hosts of popular radio shows during the 1930s? But there's even a more interesting story. And perhaps we should ask Mr. Kanan to tell that story in his own words. So I am sitting here on April 27th in Berkeley, California, interviewing Mr. Stuart Kanan, legendary violinist. <laughs> and, uh, in my man, own mind. Yeah, maybe. in your own mind. <laughs> and many, and uh, with a variety of experiences, which sort of encapsulates why this instrument is such an enchanting instrument for people who really are involved in it. The doors it opens, the unexpected experiences we have that we might not have even imagined when we started. So um, maybe you could tell me the year you were born and where you were born, and then anything about your family, particularly if there's anything related to music or them coming over from Europe or just, you know, how did they get to be where they are? Well, I, I was born in New York City on April 5th, 1926. Uh, I always think it was a good year. <laughs> the Depression had not hit yet. <laughs> My father was a um, uh, an immigrant from England. His his parents were from Russia, but he was born in Manchester, England, and he came over to the United States with an absolute passion for the violin. He sort of played in a very amateurish way, but he knew, and he had an he had an understanding of what good sound was on the violin. As a matter of fact, one of the anecdotes I always say is that when I, I used to practice and he didn't like my vibrato, he would take my, my hand and move it rapidly back and forth. He said, he said, it doesn't sound like Heifetz yet. So I said, Finally, I got it up enough courage when I was about 16 or 17, and he was still practicing with me when he was home from work. 
I said, but Dad, I'm not Heifetz, so how can I sound like Heifetz? Anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, I still remember that, that moment, but uh, he, uh, he just had an absolute, pain. he didn't like any other instrument, didn't care for any other instrument outside of the violin. Mm. So, and he, he could show me little things, you know, he couldn't really play, but he knew, he knew that the bow goes in the right hand, the fiddle in the left hand. So anyway, that's, I, I, and he bought me, he bought a violin home when I was about five years old. And I took to it right away. I had what the Germans call Zitzfleisch. And uh, in other words, I had the ability to sit and practice. And I liked it. I, 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 and when I was seven years old, I actually played a Vivaldi concerto with a, a little <laughs> local orchestra that my, then my violin teacher had, and uh, out in, uh, oh, uh, this was in, in Rockaway, uh, Far Rockaway in, uh, on Long Island, and in the borough of Queens in New York City. Mm. And we lived there. Uh, until I graduated from Far Rockaway High School, and then my parents decided it's time for us to move to the city because they wanted me to take advantage of the cultural activities. What was that community like when you were growing up? I mean, this is In a Far real Rockaway, mixed, yeah, well, mixed it, we, immigrants. We were, we were two blocks from the Atlantic Ocean, right. and we spent most of the summers in the water. I would go from the water to practicing, <laughs> from practicing to the water. Mm. And as a matter of fact, years later, when I was living in Oberlin, Ohio, I had to see someone, a doctor, about my ears, and he said, he looked and he said, did you grow up on the Atlantic Ocean? I said, how did you know that? He said, well, if you swim a lot in cold water, the bone shapes itself in a certain way to protect the eardrum, and I see that in you. So I said, "My God, that's amazing!" Because I I did do that. You know? So uh, uh, Woody uh, Allen grew up there, and or he he wrote. Uh, we were talking earlier about old time radio, which right. we'll get to. And he did a wonderful film called Radio Days. Oh yeah. And he talks about when he was a kid. This is a little later, but you know, looking out and far Rockaway in the water for Nazi submarines. <laughs> well, during the war, uh, we're talking about uh, 1941, we were still living in Rockaway. My father was a, patrolled the boardwalk as a civil, civil defense. He, he was looking for, uh, looking for submarines too, you know, looking for a light out or something out there in the ocean, <laughs> the, civil, the civil defense. So we lived, uh, we lived through the, uh, the Second World War there. What was the uh, cultural group your family came from? Were they were they English? They were Jewish. They uh, were well. We were Jewish, of course, and and we, my my uh, grandparents came from Russia, as I said. My but they must have emigrated from Russia to England, uh -huh. because then my father was born in Manchester, England. He was a Mancurian, as they say. That's how they pronounce it. Uh, that's how they identify themselves. And uh, my mother's uh, family was from Russia, too. And so it was a, a, strictly a, a Russian background. And was Canaan a change name? Had yes, it? it was. Yeah, it was Hanin, C-H-A-N-I-N. But there is a Channon building in New York, 
which unfortunately is not part of our family. Because <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Well, it's a very nice home. Were. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> if it were. But anyway, that was the name. But but uh, my parents changed it, and uh, they left out the Cha. So it's, it became Canaan, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was also, your were, was your family uh, were they practicing uh, Jews in terms oh, no, of temple no, and that no, sort no. of thing? They would, no, no, no. They they were Jewish culturally, but not religiously. I, I guess that's the best way to uh, to identify our, ourselves. And uh, but there and, is such a history of the violin within well, the Jewish yes, culture. Well, yes, of course. And, and so maybe the, in a way that was someone an asked me why why do most why are most violinists Jewish? <laughs> I said, first of all, you have to be built like a fire hydrant. <laughs> you know, short and squat like Isaac Stern. <laughs> or center of gravity thing or something. <laughs> and and uh, one of the also the other reason is that the fiddle could be transported easily. Uh, and in in Russia, you know, if you played the fiddle. And you had to flee. You could grab the fiddle and go. Uh, you couldn't do that with a piano. <laughs> That'd be too difficult. So, uh, you know, these may be all stories, but... Yeah, and I, I think I, I interviewed a, a fellow, Mr. Stavins. He's a professor at Amherst. And his family is Jewish, but had settled in South America and eventually Mexico. And he was the first one who had me understand that often the Jewish people were experts at so many languages. And they had to be. They were moving around yes. so they, they could speak these different languages. And I see music as another important language. That's right. As a matter of fact, my grandfather, who was born in Vilna, or Vilnius as it's Latinized today, I, I was talking with him once. I said, how was life? They said, well, he had four flags in his apartment in Vilna. One for each army. You never know which week which army would be there. So he spoke Russian and Polish, you know, and uh, whatever other languages. <laughs> but he always said that yeah, he had these four flags that he would hang out depending on the occupying forces at the time. Which I thought, you know, it's, God, we don't live like that at all today. You know, so it's so amazing that how these people actually grew up. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. I, I, I am all the things that shape why suddenly we get this vocation yes. to uh, have have a relationship with this particular set of instruments. Right, right. And as whether we're fact, players or makers or whatever. Right. As a matter of fact, my my brother who was uh, just retired from teaching at Juilliard, he's a pianist. He's been there 50 years. He just now retired. My mother was an amateur pianist. And we had a little upright piano in the living room. You, you know, they, I mean, this is what you did in the old days. Your, your, your mother played the piano. <laughs> your father didn't necessarily play the violin, but your mother played the piano. And so my brother grew up and he became, a, you know, one of the best piano teachers in the world. And mm -hmm. that has been at Juilliard for so, so many years. So what a gift to yeah. hear from your parents, really. And at the time you were growing up, and maybe in different communities it was different, but there was this association that playing the violin was sort of the sissy's instrument. That's right. right. That, even tell me about even that. today, my I have two grown sons who are already in their fifties, and they said they would be always so embarrassed when I would walk around San Francisco where we lived, because I was carrying a fiddle case. Most of their friends 
fathers were carrying briefcases, <laughs> which meant they were lawyers or accountants or whatever. But I was carrying a fiddle, and they hated that. <laughs> and this is when you're an adult and when successful. I was in, yeah, when, yeah. Uh, yeah when I was, I was putting bread on the table. Master of the San Francisco <laughs> Three, but they hated me walking out with, with a now fiddle. Now, that's a weird uh, <laughs> twist of things. I, I mean, you know, they yeah. didn't really. Uh, yeah, but yeah. they just, they said they felt uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. I would be walking around with a violin. That's funny. Well, there is a story which I don't want to forget to tell about the uh, the Russian security guard much later, but we'll get there. That's, okay. Uh, and what people, the associations people have with uh, people carrying violin cases around, especially in the 20s and 30s. Right? Well, I could, I could slip into the story of when I was a GI. I was inducted in, 19, in 1944 in October. I was inducted by Franklin Roosevelt into the armed forces. So you got a personal letter a from A personal him. letter from <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt. Your neighbors, he would blame it on the neighbors that they have selected you to be, <laughs> to be a member of the United States Army and you have to report for duty. So I went through basic training in Florida. I became a rifleman. Uh, I was a GI, just, they were, they were basically needed, the Army was needing uh, uh, infantrymen, you know, they had enough specialists and all that, but they needed infantrymen, just guys that went out on the front lines. And, and this is 1944, you went? 1944, I was drafted yeah. in October. And that's when the real push through well, Europe... Well, the, the, the Battle of the Bulge came in December yeah. of 44, and my basic training was cut from 21 weeks to 17 weeks because they needed us in a hurry. So as I was walking up, the, and then I... I went overseas in February, I believe, of 1945. And fortunately for me, I was born at the right time because the war was beginning, was coming to an end. Even then, you could see it that the Germans were fleeing. But when I was going up the gangplank in New York onto the troop ship, I had my rifle with me. I had my duffel bag, and I was. I decided I would take a fiddle, you know, a two-dollar mm -hmm. violin. Mm -hmm. To, with me to Europe because I didn't know how long the army, the war would last, and I didn't want to lose my technique. So as I was walking up the gangplank, my commanding officer at top said, what are you doing with that, pointing to my violin case? And I said to him, you'll never know, you know. <laughs> I, I just had to have something that to take with me from the United States so that yeah. I, would, I would be able to. But I did meet, a few years ago, I met a, a guy who was a former GI my age, and he said, I remember you from the troop ship, he said, because I heard you practicing on the troop ship when you were going sailing. You know, we were in a convoy about, God only knows, how many ships and destroy and then battleships and destroyers to protect the convoy? But I I used to practice, uh, you know, amuse my colleagues and all my my friends, and then on the way through Germany when we were in boxcars and being sent up to the front, I played for them. So, but I was so I was I was very grateful to have this terrible terrible violin. You know, quality was just not there, but it was with me, and I could move my fingers. Yeah, and people have said, uh, you know, I mean, having a nicer violin than a, a, a bad violin or it makes a difference, but uh, often they'll say you can have 20 violins laid out and a good violinist will pick up one and within just a few notes, they're playing their music. I mean, it's still the instruments there, but it's 90% is their music and it's coming out of them. Yes, uh, you know the famous Heifetz story about... Uh, yes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, it, 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 uh, when someone said, 
Wow, what a beautiful, uh, what did he say, beautiful violin. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that instrument makes such beautiful music. It makes such music. a beautiful sound. <laughs> and I was held it up to his ear. He says, I don't hear a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is just, just about right. Well, you I know, just picked up recently, and then not to, again, but these are just ideas. In an antique store, what's called a missionary organ. I don't know if you've seen them. They're little reed organs with two pedals, oh, very small. Right particularly popular in the First World War, but also would be taken into these remote areas for basically, uh, being a reed organ, they don't go out of tune. So right. somebody wanted to have music. Yeah. So they'd have these religious services, huh. you know, on the battlefield, and they would yeah, play, yeah, um, play. Yeah, um, Pete Seeger's mother used to play one of these really? little missionary organs. <laughs> right. But this idea of you playing the violin in the uh, troop ship, I heard that story, I, I you know, before we came and talked. Right. And, and that was something that really stayed with me. And the fact that somebody would get in touch with you so many years later. Yes, yes, I met him. I, I was doing a little concert tour with a group. And I just, uh, he came up to me and said, were you, did you go across uh, in, in uh, February or March of 1945? I said, yeah. And he said, was the name of the ship, I think the Athol the second or something like that? I said, yes. He said, well, you're, you're, then I remember hearing you, and we sort of got to be friendly, you know. Uh, I remember hearing you practicing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's a, you know, because you're, you're anxious about where you're going. You're probably a bit seasick. Um, yes. You're away from home maybe <laughs> yeah. for the first time. Yeah. You're young. Yeah. And you hear this violin, and you remember it. Oh, yes. That's significant. I will never forget it. And you and, also played in the hospitals when you were there. Well, that's l later on yeah, after okay. after the war, the German war. And but I, I wanted to go back to the Jack Benny, the Fred Allen show. Yeah, let's go back. You yeah, know, uh, uh, let's see. I was born in 1926, and in 1936, uh, my father looked was reading the newspaper. He said, "Oh, look at this! Fred Allen is paying seventy-five dollars." For young, he had young people on his show. They could be tap dancers, uh, whistlers, uh, singers, whatever. And he's paying $75. How would you like to try out to, for a spot on the show? So I did, and I and you and how much was he making a week at that time? Well, he was making twenty five bucks a week. So I was this was, this real was money. A seventy. This was three <laughs> times what he was making. So. I, um, I we went in and I played for Uncle Jim Harkins, who was Fred's assistant at the time. And the piece I chose to play, I had no idea what they would want, was something a wonderful piece called Preludium and Allegro by Fritz Kreisler, a very famous piece, uh, uh, played today, still played today. And uh, I played it for him. He said, "Oh, Stuart," they said, "That's wonderful. We'd love to have you, but." It's, you can't have more than one minute, and this piece took four and a half because no sponsor would sponsor a kid playing the violin on a national radio show. <laughs> so if you can cut it down. So I went home, and and I, I found the B, which I had the Schubert. That's Francois Schubert, not Franz Schubert, but Francois Schubert. And I practiced it. I got it down to 45 seconds. And I went back, and, and uh, Uncle Jim said, absolutely wonderful. I said, we'll book you. So on December 30th, 1936, I was 10 years old. I, I was on the, appeared on the, on the Fred Allen show. Now, at that time, there was no coaxial cable or whatever they call it. So you had to have two broadcasts, one at 9 o'clock in the evening on a Wednesday. That was Fred's time for the East Coast or the meet, whatever. And then 
at midnight, you'd have to do it for the West Coast. So there were these two, you know, and here I am, a kid of 10, staying up till midnight <laughs> and having to play. <laughs> but anyway, on that, on that second program at midnight, uh, Fred made a remark about that 39-year-old comedian who, when he plays on the violin, it sounds like a she-wildcat defending her young. And, and here's this kid of 10 who can play so well. well. Anyway, he just made that casual remark, and I got a nice reception on the program. And that was Wednesday night. Sunday evening at 7 o'clock was Jack's time on the radio. And that's who he was talking about. Yeah. 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 The guy making it sound like, what, a she-wolf? Oh, it? no. He said it she sounds like a she-wildcat defending huh. her young. <laughs> <laughs> that was his put-down of Jack. Anyway, Jack gets on, the, on his program, and he makes a remark to say that that's not true. I do play very well. Whatever the words he used, I don't remember. Okay, that went on. Then the next Wednesday, Fred answered. And meanwhile, I used to listen to those both programs, Fred Allen and on Wednesday night and Jack Benny on Sunday evening. And this went on for weeks, weeks, and weeks. They kept talking to each other. And finally... Insulting each other. Insulting, I mean, yeah. insulting each other, yes. <laughs> you know, friendly, but it's... And it's so, legendary. Well, of course, it's, it was. A, it made it made their, the the radio feud became the biggest thing in between nineteen forty and nineteen forty four. Yeah, uh, thirty six between thirty six and forty, I should say, because that was when I first went on. So then I, they, each one, uh, I, then I was on Fred's program again. I was on Jack's program when Jack went, came to New York at the Waldorf Astoria and played his show from that. I was on, but he didn't have me play the violin. The whole purpose of that program was to prove that I was more than 10 years old, that I was 10 years, three months, two hours, and 22 minutes. So that was, you know, he was like a prosecuting attorney. And I gave him back, and they wrote me dialogue, you know, where I could whack him a little bit. Uh, he would say to me, at the opening, he'd say, uh, Stuart, uh, uh, do you play the violin? I said, yes. I said, but I don't have any time to give you a lesson. You know, it was that... that, <laughs> yeah. that Ten years of, old, right? That, right. You know, that kind of banter. Yeah. So anyway, that... And even that, though it's radio and you couldn't see Jack Benny, I'm sure, with that, know, when, he would, when you said that, he would turn and give that face like, <laughs> yes. what do I have to put up with put here? Up <laughs> exactly. So this went on. So then in 1940, they made a picture called Love Thy Neighbor. Fred and Jack made a picture, Love Thy Neighbor. It was probably, and I say this with deep appreciation for what they did for me, that it was probably one of the worst pictures ever made in Hollywood. <laughs> it was a stinker. <laughs> but it opened in New York at the Paramount Theater, and there was a stage show, and I was part of the stage show, Maury Amsterdam, and, and then and the... Um, Nicholas Brothers, the tap dancers were part of the the, the show, and, and so I played. You're now you're. I'm uh, fourteen. Old? You're fourteen. Okay. Yeah, of course I was. Uh, I was ten when I played, and four years later, yeah. is that right? Ten and four is yeah, fourteen. Yeah, okay. so you're eighteen and forty-four when you <laughs> yeah, go in the war. Right, huh? right, right. So, uh, uh, nineteen forty, and. At the end of the, the stage show, the Jack and, and Fred presented me with $1,000 as a 
check, which was very nice in those days, you know, for my, to pursue my music education, which was really neat, you know, of them. Yeah, that is nice. And what, what did, your dad was still alive and was there oh, for yeah. all this. Oh, and yeah. What did he think? Uh, because, you know, he's the guy who's been pushing he, you. And, he pushed me, yeah, into, into this. A thousand dollars. Oh, this was, hey. Fortune. Uh, this was marvelous. So I got the 75 bucks and then I got a thousand dollars in 1940, which was great. Anyway, that kind of, you know, it gave me a little foot up in the publicity world because I actually NBC asked me, at that time, my, you know, my name was pretty well known. If I would be interested, or I asked my father if I'd be interested in a 15-minute, once-a-week recital on NBC. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? A, a That's when they had their own orchestra. Pardon? NBC had its own orchestra. It had its own orchestra, but this was just a recital with oh. the piano. Oh. And my dad said, you know, I think that would kill his career, his upbringing, his ability to practice, and he turned them down. And he said, I want him, I want Stuart to grow up kind of natural or normal, you know, and in a, in a nice way. Mm. So I never, we never took advantage of that, which I don't know, you know, that's one of those, as Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. But we didn't take that one. So yeah. anyway, that, uh, that was that. And then um, I went on. on. Just let me go back here for one moment. Sure. What violin, your ten, when you start, about this time when you're 10, when you first played, what was the f- violin you, you did get that you began to play? Uh, any story about that? Not the one you took to Europe because you didn't want to take the good violin. Well, I didn't have a good violin. Yeah. I just, I don't, you, you know, that's kind of buried in my, I don't remember what I had, but, oh, I remember once what happened. I won a contest called the National Federation of Music Clubs Contest, and it was sponsored by Vix. The vapor rub, you remember, that used to rub on your chest if you yeah, had a cold or something like that. Yeah. And Tony Wands, who was a radio um, speaker, talker, you know, uh, he was a violin. He used to make violins as, 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 as was his, an amateur violin maker. And I won, as part of the prize, I won $250 and a Tony Wands violin. So <laughs> I think I used that for a while. But, you know, it's all kind of... You know, I'm 91 years old now, and uh, 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 when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, it's kind of vague now, so I only remember the Jack Benny Fred Allen show. How can you forget that, you know? So let's take this um, this time when you're now in the Army. And did you see combat? I, I was sent up to the front with a thousand of my friends and colleagues, and we were on a uh, moving on a on a train. Uh, it was called a forty and eight. Each car was equipped to handle either forty men or eight horses. So they called them forty and eights in the army. That was the the terminology they used. And we kept moving up and moving up. I just saw thousands of German prisoners coming back. They they were on these railroad cars, you know, these open cars. But I never saw combat. And on May 8th, I was in the town of Kassel, Germany, and the war ended. And wow, you know, that was, that was a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea where I was going. I could be going to Japan for all I knew because I was a uh, rifleman and that's what they needed. Well, anyway, two days after the war ended, 
orders came down where I don't know, <laughs> yeah. from where I don't know. Yeah, from God. God, <laughs> who knows? That's the army. <laughs> yeah. So I was sent back to Paris, Paris, France, <laughs> which was different than Castle Germany. <laughs> and the whole, when I got there, uh, I still remember bumping along in the back of a, of a, of a truck to Paris, and we got to Paris. I checked in at uh, Rue de Berry, where, where the army had its headquarters. And they told me I was being assigned to a, they were starting a soldier show company called the 6817 Soldier Show Company. The whole purpose was to provide entertainment for the troops staying in Europe and not going to Japan. Mm. Well, you can imagine how thankful I was for that because at age 19 to be in Paris and to live right out in the suburbs of Paris and just get accustomed to such a city. You know, I mean, as a kid mm -hmm. who, the, mm -hmm. you know, I did grow up in New York, but Paris was Paris. <laughs> yeah, and there's also a, a very justifiable anxiety about invading Japan. Well, of course. From the history and, of, how of course. that had gone. And I know and I understand the philosophical debate about whether we should have ever dropped the atom bomb. But let me put it this way, if you would ask the four million GIs remaining in Europe, if Truman should have dropped the bomb, given the orders to drop the bomb, if he had said no, he would have been lynched by the American public because the, the numbers of dead GIs assaulting the Japanese islands would have been astronomic just mm -hmm. so you know i always say well i was one of those gi's i didn't know <laughs> uh, whether whether you should drop the bomb or not but if you didn't i would be in in big in big trouble you know mm -hmm. because who knows what who know who knew what 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 we'd have to do well anyway he did and and, and the debate still goes on today now with the nuclear weapons you know so anyway that's uh, uh so anyway, I, I was sent back to Paris, and pretty soon in in June, uh, I was sent back to Paris in May. Then this is 1945. Then June and July came along, and we got all kinds of wonderful people into the this outfit: Mickey Rooney, uh, Joshua Logan, the, the famous Broadway director, uh, Eugene List, the pianist, American pianist, famous American pianist came over and Gene and I got together because there were so many wounded GIs in the hospitals around Paris that my commanding officer thought, well, it would be nice if you and Gene put together a little program of violent pieces, piano pieces, and just got an upright piano and we put it on a truck mm -hmm. and we'd go to the hospital and just move it into a ward. And, and play for the guys, you know, that that's was, that was the origin of this. Anyway, we developed a nice program. It took about 45 minutes, but it was all short pieces, Chrysler pieces, uh, uh, just just short things. You're that saying they, the doctor had said, basically. Pardon? The doctor had sort of said, well, we need a certain kind. It yes, can't be too yes, long, yes, some exactly. Of these guys were Something, really, so, you know, cheerful or, or snappy. Because they were or suffering. Maybe. Yeah, well, they were in terrible shape. So we did this all over the, the, the Paris and its own you know, the, just playing in different hospitals for the guys. 
Then in July, our CEO came, our commanding officer came to Eugene and myself. He said, you know, I just got word that President Truman is coming to Europe and he wants some Americans, some GI entertainment. And I would like you and, and Gene to put together your program and get ready. And I'll ask Mickey. And he actually asked, there was another young man by the name Bobby Breen. Nobody knows today, but maybe, maybe people remember he was a tenor on all these uh, uh, comedy shows. You know, they always had a tenor, Dennis Day and Bobby yeah, Breen, yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, Bobby was on that. And he came, he was on, in the Soldier Show Company. So they, in July, about July 17th, they flew us to Berlin, to Tempelhof Air, Airfield, and right in the center of Berlin. The four of us in this big C. And this Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney, yeah. Bobby Green, Gene List, and myself. Okay, okay. Right. And we were purported just to entertain President Truman. Well, that's all we knew, nothing more. And our commanding officer didn't know anything either. So we got to Potsdam. They had a tent set up for us. And this was the Russian zone, by the way. Potsdam was in the Russian zone. So I still have my identification card <laughs> identifying me as, a, as an American GI who is allowed to walk around the Russian zone with this uh, ID. So that we got into this uh, tent and we stayed there for about a day or two. And one, one evening our commanding officer came and said, uh, Eugene, you and, and Stuart are going across to play for Truman. And he said, I'm sorry, Mickey, but Joe Stalin is going to be there too. And my commander's daughter didn't think that Mickey Rooney's humor would, <laughs> would be appreciated mm. by Stalin. You know, it was kind of raucous <laughs> stuff. And I, nobody, I didn't know whether Stalin spoke English or not. I doubt it. Or maybe he did a little bit. But anyway... Mickey never got to <laughs> never got to uh, to to appear before Truman or or Stalin. Well, anyway, we we played and um, and I wrote a letter the next morning to my my parents in New York and I said, "You'll never believe mm -hmm. who I played for <laughs> last night." And normally, I said, "I hope the papers pick it up." I said, "It would be nice if if somebody heard about it, this performance." Well, anyway. I got back a letter from my parents that not only did the New York Times print it, but every paper, every radio station in captivity had the fact that you two guys were on the, were playing for the big three at, the, at yeah. the Potsdam conference. So that that was the first I began to realize how powerful the media can can be. But just before this, yeah. as you're getting ready to play, tell that story about. Stalin's uh, the guard, the, the oh, bodyguard. Oh, <laughs> uh, there was a little upright piano in the back. They've just come in in these limousines or something, right? Oh, oh, that okay. I see. And then, yeah, yes, yes, so, yes, so, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So we go across the street and up this wonderful German house, big, big house that hadn't been damaged in the in the war by bombs. It was Potsdam. I think they didn't really hit Potsdam much. So we're walking up the steps and we're getting, we got onto the porch. Uh, uh, it was on the second floor, which was where the dining room was. And so we're, we're standing there, Gina and I talking, we're looking out over the, the porch 
banister and we're looking out and down the and we hear automobile noises come around the corner comes one limousine one black limousine after another what's that you know well we're standing there looking as they do, do up to the house and out of one steps winston churchill out of another steps joseph stalin in his khaki marshal's uniform and Everybody from the front page of the New York Times was there, Admiral, uh, Secretary of State Burns, uh, Molotov, uh, uh, oh Lord, I mean, I can't... Was uh, Marshall there? Marshall, yeah. Oh, everybody, everybody was there. Everybody was there. <laughs> and the, whole, the idea was that it was the first state dinner. Truman was giving a state dinner, and he, it was his turn. He was the host of the... The conference goes anyway. So he was, and they were eating in a dining room just off at the porch, and we looked through, and all these guys, you know, and uh, I didn't, we didn't really know who was, who was, who or where. So eventually, they finished eating, and they came out, and there was a, a sofa, a three-man sofa. Truman sat in the center. Stalin sat on his left befitting his political affiliation. Oh, yeah. and, and Churchill sat on his right, befitting yeah. him. He was a member of the Conservative Party. And little did I know that at that just at that moment, the, the Brits were voting, and they were voting to throw him out of office after five years mm -hmm. of leading the, the, the Great Britain through the war. He was, so he was not in a great mood. But he had his cigar. It was about three feet long. And we played, and then Truman just loved it. He came over to us, and, and uh, he said he would send me a picture if I gave him his, my address. And he sent me an autographed picture, which, by the way, the Hoover Institute, uh, you know about that. Yeah. They are, have archived all these pictures and letters to my family, mm. uh, and it's on, it'll be on display as soon as they digital, digitalize it. Mm -hmm. So it will be at the Hoover Institute uh, down at Stanford uh, for the future because I, I, I signed over my rights to these pictures, I, except I have the, the Truman photo. I said, I think my family would want that. Yeah. So anyway, yes. So the moment comes up just before you play. And oh, yes. The, yeah, yes no, I'm going to get yes. you there. And you I'm sorry. Talk. Yes. Truman, uh, uh, Stalin so they're was, sitting on the couch. I'm yeah, they're sitting on the couch, and, and Stalin has his aide standing behind him. So this upright piano is there, and I had put my violin behind that piano just to get it out of the way, and I wouldn't have to hold it. And when Truman said, would you play something, gentlemen? Uh, so I got up, and I went to behind the piano, to get my fiddle, and a Russian, this Russian aide to Stalin, he leaped across the, the, the room and stood over me while I opened the violin case. And when he saw me take out a violin and a bow, he went back very calmly to his place behind Stalin. Just in case you were Al Capone. Well, in case I wanted to make history at that moment <laughs> because I had wow. no way, no idea of that. Well, but you must have been nervous already. Wait, you're only 18. Well, I was 18, yeah. And you're nervous. You yeah. have to be nervous. Oh, no, wait a minute. I was 19. It was 1945, right. so I, my birthday was in April. So I was just three months into 19, yeah. Right, and so you're already nervous, and then yeah. but you have it, this little thing happens right before. Right before, but <laughs> you know something? I was nervous until I started to play, and once I had my violin in my hand and I was doing something I really knew, and we had played this program 
dozens and dozens of times for the GIs, the wounded mm -hmm. GIs. Mm -hmm. So I knew what I was doing, and I was not nervous anymore. So, you know, it's just how, how life is. If you're, it's the thought that makes you nervous, but once you're doing what you are uh, accustomed to doing, you're okay, you know, and I was. And Truman liked it so much that he asked us if we would come back the next day and play for his own generals and, and, and politicians. So we went back three more times and we played uh, the same program for him. And then at one point he sat down at the piano when we were playing for his, uh, his uh, American colleagues and he was playing Missouri Waltz, I think it was. He played it. He played the piano. I know his, his yeah, daughter. Yeah, he he's a uh, Margaret. Was, was it good? She was a singer. Oh, singer. She was, oh, I she thought was she a singer. Played piano. Okay, no, so well, she may have played the piano, but she was basically a singer. Oh, and Ooh. Truman played. And Truman played the piano, yeah. yeah. And and while he was playing, Gene and I were standing there turning pages for him. So while he was playing, he said to us in a sort of a sotto voce. He said, you know, I wonder how much better off the country would have been if I had become a concert pianist. And we're listening to the President of the United States say this. Yeah, and, but what you realized he had just learned. Well, we, yeah, we didn't know at that moment, yeah. but a little later on we yeah. found out that they had just learned of the successful dropping of the atom bomb in, in Las uh, in oh, the testing New Mexico in the, the test grounds, yeah. Yeah, the Trinity. Yeah, yeah so... He had just it, learned this. It was, if you look at the history, and I've had some Stanford professors talking, uh, talking with me, they said it was just at that time, maybe the day before, that he found out. And he mentioned it to Stalin at the conference mm -hmm. that he, he had a very great weapon. And Stalin, he's, according to him, he said he didn't flinch, he didn't bat an eyelash, you know, as the saying goes, because he probably knew already mm, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that they had such a thing. Yeah, so that was... Uh, and then, so his reflection on, on what music was and what you were doing with him, because, you know, he didn't even know about the Manhattan Project until the day that's Roosevelt pretty much died. So. Roosevelt kept him out of the loop completely. So talk about so, a learning curve. Yeah, yeah. But, you know... But he said, he said that he felt that he needed music to start the conference. This was the first state dinner to start the conference because it would have made things relaxing. Uh, uh, congenial. congenial. Congenial, yeah. And he, he thought that Stalin probably liked music. But the funny part of it is each uh, leader of each country gave a dinner Truman's was the first, and then Stalin gave one. And what did Stalin do for entertaining? entertaining? He called to Moscow, and he got two violinists and two pianists, classically trained, to come and play. Mm -hmm. And then Churchill hated classical music. And what did he do? <laughs> and this is written down in, in, in some of the history books, that... He got the British Royal Navy band to play for marches <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> at, the, at the at the dinners <laughs> that uh, that he gave. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, it was it was kind of a little funny incident about that. 
Let's listen now to Mr. Kanan play a portion of a musical composition that he played for the Big Three, Truman, Churchill, and Stalin, at the Potsdam Conference in these people who kind of does believe that things happen for a reason. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm curious. It's, you know, your story's full of, um, you know, happy accidents, right? Yes. I mean, right, right. Fred Allen, that he right. would even advertise. Right. And your father would know it. And right. You know, how doors open and how you get to play for Truman. Right. So what do you think is, just, we'll go on to other things, but what do you think this <laughs> idea of serendipity or, or um, kismet, providence well, I always go, que sera, sera, you know, what will be, will be. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. So I, I don't try to anticipate anything. But, uh, you know, but when I said to the, my commanding officer climbing up the gangplank, I said, you never know. <laughs> when he said, what are you going to do with that? I said, well, you know, well that's case of Azarad. You know, what will be, will be. So yeah. uh, that's, 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 that's my philosophy anyway. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I would also like to thank the generous people at the Graduate Berkeley Hotel on Durant Avenue in Berkeley, California, just a block from the UC Berkeley campus. They put us up in grand style, and this podcast might not have happened without their support. I also want to thank Elizabeth Weber. It was thanks to her close friendship with Mr. Kanan that this interview did happen. ¶¶